Hello, everyone. Hi. Welcome to the Transportation Logistics Theater. My name is Marina Mayer, and I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Food Logistics and Supply and Demand Chain Executive. Um, today, we'll be talking about how the cold chain is heating up the transportation market. I'm accompanied by Jeff Milson, Vice President of InvistaCorp, and Matthew Burke, Supply Chain Program Manager for Castellini Company. So now I'm going to pass it over to Jeff. There you go. Take it away. All right. Thank you. Um, so in my capacity, I run the transportation consulting practice at Invista. So we work with manufacturers, distributors, retailers, and third-party logistics companies on their overall strategy, uh, systems implementation, and modeling and analytics. And so I'll try to provide some perspective uh, from a handful of different industries on what we're seeing some of our clients doing within the cold chain. Hi, everyone. First thing, by a round of applause, how's everyone feeling today? Let's see if we can get a little louder. By a round of applause, how's everyone feeling today? All right, a lot of the same. Okay. Uh, as the supply chain program manager for the Castellini group of companies, uh, I have responsibility over all of the technology and business processes related within supply chain execution. So you can talk demand planning, forecasting demand planning, transportation, warehouse, inventory, logistics, uh, really within that space. So. And in full disclosure, Matt and I did work together uh, doing implementation many years ago, so we have you know, the scars to prove it and some experience together working on a project. So here's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to go through um, four main sort of principles or ideas or, or thoughts on what we see happening in the cold chain transportation market. We're going to talk about you know, what, what Castellini Companies is doing and, and what Matt's done in his background. And then I'll, I'll speak to some of the things that some of our clients are going through. We're going to talk about quality management and how that's impacted transportation and technology. We're going to talk about network complexity and some of the, you know, what is driving network complexity in the cold chain. And then what are ways in which you can deal with it from a transportation perspective. We'll talk about general visibility, uh, some of the demands from customers and internal stakeholders on how do you create visibility, why is it important, what types of business cases are around it. And then we'll get into a little bit of food, tra food traceability, uh, food safety and compliance. And then uh, just wrap it up and then open it up to some questions. Feel free to raise your hand during any one of these topics to ask questions. You don't have to wait till the end. We will try to leave uh, 15 minutes or so at the end for follow-up questions. Um, so. That's the agenda, and we'll get into it. We'll start with the quality management piece, and I'll let, I'll let Matt dig into this topic. Sure. For, so for this discussion, there was really, from my vantage point, two ideas that I wanted to share with you all. Uh, first of which is what I mentioned on the screen is product integrity. And again, I think contextually for this group, what I mean by that uh, is uh, temperature management, temperature control, uh, as well as kind of you know mitigating or detective-based factors around uh, the temperature within the trailer, uh, both at pickup and obviously at receipt. Um, what we're seeing and what I have seen specifically in my role is uh, the increase beyond what was the kind of old school temp recorders where you're just kind of at either one or multiple spaces within the trailer uh, managing the current state of that reefer temp uh, to 
both internal devices, so something like a blue tree or something within Thermoking that actually exists within the reefer that offers some greater integrated controls around uh, any impact points or, or the performance of how the trailer is doing and the temperature within the trailer, but then also in other third-party apps. So think some of those smaller little device modules that can either be affixed to the pallet or they could be affixed to a certain grouping of cases uh, that both devices, obviously the, the kind of reefer-enabled devices are internet-enabled, but also these smaller devices can admit uh, an internet signal and report back within some controls uh, the performance within that relative space of um, what the temperature is uh, for that particular product. Um, and of course, some of these devices uh, being affixed either at the shipper or at, from you know, our standpoint, outbound delivery to customers, um, and then allow us those controls reporting back into uh, some of our TMS systems um, in regards to whether something kind of dips out of range or there's a, an action that's necessary to, necessary to be required. So, uh, and then the second piece, in which I call execution tools, uh, leverages another piece of what, at least I, in my space, have seen as emerging technologies, back to the, the ELD and telematics devices, those being now more Android-enabled, more iPhone or iOS-enabled, uh, is leveraging the internet connectivity of those devices to offer up some forms and some uh, ability to bounce back against our quality program and our quality rules uh, for some faster and more uh, uh, efficient decision making. And I'll kind of use as an example of that uh, around when product is rejected, at least from our standpoint, uh, at the customer. So traditionally, and I'm sure there's you know a number of folks here within the audience that have had a similar experience like this, product is rejected at the customer, driver calls back into dispatch, reports the rejection, uh, an RA is created most likely in whatever native ERP or TMS or, or, or routing system, um, and then some type of manual decision would have to be rendered there on, do you bring the product back? Do you maybe find another sorting facility somewhere in that standpoint? And of course, the impact that that causes where you might miss a backhaul, there might be another front haul, um, and it's, it's generally impacts the performance of that route. Uh, with these type of devices, that RA generation and also disposition, so possible based on a simple questionnaire, can be triggered from that device as well as capturing photos, capturing video, uh, so that faster, more efficient decision making can happen with uh, the appropriate parties back in the home office. Um, so specifically, that's what I kind of wanted to share uh, at least from my vantage point within the quality side of the house that impacts our transportation, both our, our private fleet and our commercial carriers, uh, some of the things that we're focusing on that I also see in the space. All right, thank you, Matt. We're gonna move on to network complexity and, and what we're seeing, and, and this is true for, for Castellini's business, and, and when we go back to Matt, I'd like Matt to talk a little bit about their network complexity as part of Castellini Companies, who's both a produce distributor, food service distributor, as well as a third-party logistics company, and also a fourth-party logistics company through RWI. So you can hit on how that has added complexity into your business. But not everybody is both a shipper and a logistics service provider. However, what we're seeing in cold chain is there's, there's a couple of driving forces on the overall network complexity. Number one is just the continual uh, push from the customer with uh, more frequent deliveries, less inventory, smaller drop size, um, you know, more, more services around the delivery, right? So that creates some complexity in the network. And number two is when you do geographic expansion with a cold chain, it's not as simple as dry goods and maybe you pop up a facility and, and go out and do your distribution. You have to introduce cross docks, you have to introduce relay points, 
Um, your customers in different regions take on a different shape than maybe your local city delivery type customers. And so your network grows much more complex, much quicker than a non-cold uh, non -cold chain supply chain. And so this obviously drives up uh, costs, but also coupled with you know, hopefully driving up your, your overall margins. Um, so with that, I'm going to transition over to Matt, who's going to give you some specific examples within their network around how their network has grown in complexity and also describe the multiple business models they have. Yeah, so um, really, I'll try to kind of uh, categorize this both, at least from my vantage point, on the buy side as well as on the sell side or the forward side. So on the buy side, um, it's, it's as an impact to our demand planning, we're seeing a reduction, and I have also can comment that I've seen this really largely across the space with uh, other light competitors to Castellini, is smaller buyer volumes. So it's less about buying a full truckload of berries or a full truckload of mixed greens. It's more about two or three pallets. It's more about which then introduces a consolidation demand. Um, so because you don't want to run, obviously, a majority of that trailer space empty. So smaller buyer volumes that's lining up with our customer demands on wanting more frequent deliveries uh, of those kind of smaller specific commodities that they may be sourcing. Um, for us on the sell side, and that's where we're kind of getting into some of the different business models is, you know, Jeff certainly touched on, we have uh, kind of a more forward straight distribution model, which could be in the uh, uh, food service or the broadliner space. So think Cisco, think US Foods, think PFG, Reinhardt, those guys. Um, but then also on the retail space, which could be anything from straight distribution or RDC distribution all the way to DSD level business. So, and then you can see then that comment about smaller buyer volumes really getting uh, escalated when you get down to those smaller facilities, larger delivery amounts, 10, 15 stops. Um, and that's where it's, it, we're really taxing our network complexity uh, to be able to still service our customers as well as make the right buying decisions so that we, uh, we mitigate spoilage, we mitigate dumps, turnover, you know, inventory turns, uh, et cetera. So. Who here thinks they have a, a complicated network? Not buying it. Okay. What, what business are you in? Oh, Maricold. There we go. Okay. So 3PL. Great. Um, one of the things that we've noticed in, in, in Cold Chain, and this is sort of a network complexity mixed with an organizational complexity, is you've got a lot of commodity buying, right? So um, when you've got commodity buying mixed with a uh, volatile transportation industry like refrigerated truckload or refrigerated LTL, you end up pulling, historically pulling the freight procurement decisions and sort of network decisions into that commodity buyer's role. And one of the things that Castellini has worked very hard on and some of our other food and beverage clients is pulling that back into the supply chain, logistics, planning, and transportation group. Because at the end of the day, they're going to make better decisions about freight buys than a commodity buyer who's very intimate with Particularly, particular commodity categories and doesn't understand what's happening across the commodities and across the buyers and also, frankly, doesn't understand the supply chain network and where the nodes are and how the supply chain people want to flow product, right? And so it's sort of a network complexity piece tied into org complexity. And when you try to solve these problems with systems, you also have to make process and org changes, right? Okay, general visibility. So this is probably one of the hottest technologies in, in transportation. 
And visibility means a lot of different things to a lot of different organizations. So when we, we talk to folks, they say, I want better visibility. They're usually trying to answer the question, where's my stuff? And in real time. And people have been trying to answer this question forever. And I would say one of the most um, shocking things to us outside of some of the valuation that these companies are getting when they're raising money is about two years ago, the visibility applications got as expensive as the TMSs and the vehicle routing systems, right? Where historically, most of the value in the organization from a business case perspective is in planning and execution uh, and maybe paying the bills. And that middle segment around track and trace has been important, but not as important. And now the visibility providers are getting as much as the TMS providers, which tells you that there's high demand, high willingness to pay. Right? And what's enabled this, obviously, the drop in technology costs, but also domestically, all the compliance around ELDs and having telematics and, and uh, getting those into trucks and then being able to pull that information as well as drivers more frequently having smartphones and cell phones so you can track their location, right? So there's, there's a couple of different things influencing this, but at the end of the day, people want to know where's my stuff, not a new question. Um, one of the things that we've worked very hard with with our clients, and this is sometimes elusive, is the actual business case to answer that question, right? You want good customer service and you want to be able to tell your customer where your stuff is, where's the dot on the map, but what does that lead to? And there's a couple of things that it, that it leads to. Number one, if you're supplying certain folks in the supply chain, they've got on time and full OTIF type compliance programs and chargebacks that if you now know exactly where your stuff is, you can make adjustments and set better expectations and therefore change your appointment times or avoid to some extent some of those chargebacks and fines, right? So there's some hard dollar ROI there. There's also some hard dollar ROI if you're in control of the labor at the warehouse and can do better planning for your receiving uh, make sure the dock space is clear, dock space is available, and you've got the right labor in the right place at the right time. So there's some labor savings. The third place is around the call volume, either reduction or speed to answer the question, where's my stuff? And that's a little bit softer and a little bit harder to quantify because most people don't want to go into their customer service or sales department and cut heads because they've got some more automated ways of answering the question, where's my stuff? But that's probably the third business case. And sometimes the place where people start they think you know, reducing call volume, email volume will, will be the number one generator of value, but usually it's number one and number two. So I'm, I'll, I'm gonna pause there and pass it over to Matt who can talk about what they're doing from a visibility perspective and how they've evolved their approach. Yeah, so I've got, I'll kind of talk about this in a little bit of a story scenario of what um, we've specifically, what I've specifically experienced within Castellini, um, and again, how I've seen that kind of ripple out through the industry. Um, Back to an earlier comment I made about uh, smaller buy volumes, smaller delivery volumes, more frequent deliveries. Um, one particular piece we've seen um, escalate more recently is in the food service and broadliner space. Um, so think Reinhardt, US Food, Cisco, like I mentioned before. Um, their customer base, you figure, are restaurants, their other kind of you know, major food distributors or, or kind of you know, end consumer kind of commercially facing food consumption spaces where perishables from my selfish standpoint is not their only product line. They're selling forks, they're selling napkins, they're selling meats, they're selling poultry, dairy, uh, drinks, beverages, maybe coordinating in that space. And so for them, it's smarter when they design and staff their DCs or RDCs to focus on those particular components Simply enough, because it doesn't die 10 days later, right? You know, forks are always going to be forks. So, but 
obviously them offering to their customer base fresh fruits, vegetables, citrus, potatoes, onions, etc., um, is still a key factor. So what they've imposed back up the chain on providers like myself is more of those frequent smaller volumes to essentially cross-stock through their facilities to make those end deliveries to their customers. And that's where we've seen um, a focus, an increased focus on this exact component with that particular customer segment from us is they want to know down to the hour, down to the minute, because they're trying to plan their deliveries for their customers. And also they don't have the luxury of even having maybe, you know, uh, the conducive refrigerated dock space, not alone, not alone refrigerated warehouse space from a food safety and SQF perspective to house my product for any length of time. So they want to bring it onto the dock and under an hour, cross-stock it off out onto an end delivery truck of their own, most likely their own equipment, to then make that customer delivery or deliveries plural. So that's one particular use case that we've also kind of been seeing spread across the base and certainly on the retail side, you know, as well as they're kind of trying to organize their own store deliveries and their own kind of final mile deliveries. Okay, Matt, I have a question for you you're not prepared for. So how good do you think Castellini is at answering the question about where's my stuff, like maturity-wise? or grade yourself, and then how long is it taking you to get there? And then part three of the question is, do you understand, roughly speaking, the cost to answer the question, where's my stuff? So, what was it? Part one was, how good am I? Yeah, maturity level. Okay. Um, I will say, uh, within all honesty, that I am incredibly immature. No. Um, we are... I think within our wheelhouse, and I'll clarify that here in a second, within our wheelhouse, I think we are extremely accurate on being able to report really the breadcrumb level of where our equipment is and how it is performing because we've made both those software and hardware technical investments um, in our private fleet. And I mentioned I was going to clarify within our wheelhouse. That's what I mean is within our private fleet where I believe we have work to do is in our commercial carrier base. And some of that is largely related to um, still being kind of uh, pigeon held by older integration models. So older EDI capabilities that would lack some of the more real time visibility and some of that ability to draw in um, as well as being able to scale some of those now some of it is a little kind of more mature in the space, but like your macro point level technologies or your, your fork heights or level technologies that allow that to extend down to smartphone level tracking or flip phone level tracking for those commercial carriers. What was the second question? So part three, you got part one and two. Part three was, do you have a rough sense of how much it costs to answer the question around where's my stuff? Maybe you'd have to segment that by outbound versus inbound also. Um, you know, and this is a little embarrassing to say, is that I, uh, I don't. I don't have that, and I think that's a little bit of a limitation that bleeds over kind of beyond this, this discussion a little bit, and is that's because Castellini, um, we run pretty lean. We don't have a customer service department. Um, a lot of the calls, inbound calls, either come directly to those commodity buyers, um, or they come directly to transportation. Um, I will say volume has dropped since we've implemented our newest TMS, um, which was about three years ago on the outbound side for our private fleet, uh, call volume has dropped about, we'll say a third, so we'll say 33% um, from that standpoint. Um, and how I'm figuring that number is, is really the time frame 
just based on where all of our deliveries typically exist, uh, is anywhere from like the, the 7 to 8 o'clock p.m. Eastern time marker, well into, say, the 3, 4, 5 o'clock a.m. time marker. Calls have dropped in that regard. So, This is a question for the audience now, just by a show of hands. Who feels like they've got a very mature approach and mature uh, ability to execute on very good visibility for internal and external stakeholders? Who feels very mature? Nobody, right. Who feels like they're okay, they've got an approach like Matt, they've made improvements, maybe they don't know their total cost of ownership around it, but at least have an approach? A couple people, and then who has absolutely nothing? And who is this not relevant for? To everybody else, right? Who all <laughs> very, still carry Very enthusiastic. Pager. It's irrelevant. <laughs> Great. Who all still carrying a pager? Uh, o for two. Okay, so food safety and food traceability. Um, really, for me, uh, within this conversation, is this is the amalgamation of largely everything we just talked about. Uh, so you take how you're recognizing temperature controls uh, within the trailer, on the road, coupled with the ability to capture and recognize maybe critical quality components or, or CCPs, uh, critical control points uh, at the shipper, as well as if product is rejected on the return side from a disposition standpoint. And then you factor in your route complexity uh, and where you would need to kick off or, or offer as an exit point those critical control points, and then you layer in the general visibility. Um, short of really kind of going off the reservation and talking about SQF, you know, that's where I think you know, this is where everything we've talked to leads up to really food traceability. The only other thing I will add to this, and I think this graphic outlines it pretty well, is the demand for not necessarily the technology or the capabilities to capture that information, but to easily and efficiently and flexibly share that information, right? And I'm, I'm imagining in a space um, a, a recall event. So, you know, at least from my standpoint, you know, USDA has very stringent requirements on when, if you are participating or are an impact point within that recall, you have to report these critical control points within a very fixed amount of time. And that's not days, that's hours. That's, that's very rapid fire. Um, and we, I can say confidently, have struggled with this in the past, that our answer, and as well as we found out with a lot of our customers, as well as our vendors, is our answer is to everyone drops everything and throws every single bo solitary body we can at it. You start pulling old extracts, you start querying that old 8S400 database, show my age, um, and you just start cobbling together as many spreadsheets as you can, right? Microsoft gets a ton of our business, all of these spreadsheets. So it's investing in probably what is maybe the more technical points of this conversation, um, API architecture, uh, integration architecture, making sure if you're looking at some of these uh, program vendors or some of these software vendors, what integration capabilities do they have? What abilities do they have to extract or, or pull data? You know, which is a little bit of a sticky point, especially if you're looking at cloud-deployed applications, uh, cloud where the vendor is hosting the server. How, what ability do you have to access that data? How quickly can you pull that data out? 
um, because typically you need to mirror that up with what could be order management data, what could be warehousing data, what could be labor data uh, to understand those touch points and then put it together in a, in a readable form, which could be different based on scenario, and then report it back out. So that's really everything leading up to this from a food safety and food traceability standpoint, um, coupled with those technical or those integration demands, oftentimes the unsexy stuff, but those integration demands is something where I think this is going to be, this is, to be fair, an important point right now, and it's only going to become more important as we move forward into the future. And what, yeah, what we've seen is um, from just the commercial pressure side, it's typically the last point in the supply chain, the retailer, the fast food, quick service restaurant, who's able to apply pressure upstream to companies like Castellini to create the level of food traceability that, that is either required by FDA or for their internal standards, right? Because two, there's two impacts when, when an event happens. Number one is, you know, enterprise value drops because people are scared to go to those stores. Number two is you end up dumping a ton of product because you don't know which product was also affected throughout your network, right? We, if you remember recently Romaine, right? Like Romaine was gone for I think months because no one knew exactly where it came from. So there's a huge cost to the company outside of their enterprise value drop. And <clears throat> what we found is when the restaurant chain forces this upon you know, and, and all cold chains are really fragmented, right? Because in the food business, you've got farmers and packers and food brokers and consolidators and redistributors and distribution companies and carriers and <clears throat> lots of intermediaries in this. So you've got a whole group that you have to get aligned on a couple of different things. Number one is a data standard. So the, we, we, the most common one we see is GS1. So the company has to pick a standard that everyone in the supply chain will comply with, and it's typically around two pieces of data, location data and product data. So GLN and G10, those are kind of the two critical pieces, location and product. And they have got to get everyone in the supply chain to accept that standard and then filter that, that data up into a single repository where they can do this and get away from the spreadsheet gymnastics and drop everything in order to figure out where stuff came from, right? The other piece you have to figure out is, you know, what level of granularity do we actually need? This is a, an example where there's four critical tracking events that became um, the standard for this supply chain that everyone has to stack hands around and drive towards. And then you have to come up with the whole, the whole program to roll this out. This is a program, not a project. This takes months or years, not, you know, kind of weeks and months like a typical project. And then it requires maintenance for a long period of time. So <clears throat> we've seen this. I would say the maturity level around this today in the industry is very low, and companies have had a lot of problems trying to implement this because of all the fragmented nature of their cold chain, but also the difficulty around data. Um, and so this is, this is one that, you know, as Matt said, this is a culmination of all those other pieces, has been extremely difficult to get um, compliance and alignment in, in all these supply chains. Quick question for the audience. Um, who out there is interacting today with GS1? It's a global standard, so there's you know, one person. <laughs> it's one guy on the globe. Nito, um, uh, are you publishing out to a GDSN today? Are you publishing out to a GDS1, a data pool? OK. I heard him. So cool. Um, yeah. I. That's an important point that I want to reiterate that, that Jeff made about 
publishing GS1 data. And it's really something that, I'm going a little off the rails from the traceability point, but it's really something that, um, you know, specifically our retail customers are looking for because they're using that data uh, in point of sale. So if they're using us as a vendor, they're looking for us to publish those G10s uh, as well as the other corresponding uh, GS1 attributes um, to them on a regular basis so that they can propagate that information down to their point of sale systems. Where the challenge comes for us is, you know, GS1 is ownership based and Castellini doesn't own any of that product from a GS1 perspective because we're not a grower. So it turns into some, a much more complex model when say Kroger comes to me and says, hey, I'm buying apples from you. I need you to publish to me uh, your G10s for all the apples I buy from you. Well, now we're looking at a one-to-many situation because I could buy apples from one of say 10 different vendors. And I'm pretty sure Kroger doesn't want 10 different items within their item master of who they want to buy from even though that then the execution of that thing comes from Castellini. So, you know, as a data problem that touches on this food safety piece that wraps into the overall conversation, it's, it's a big challenge in the space right now. And one that even, not to be doom and gloom, GS1 doesn't have a great answer for because as we were trying to solve this, and I forked up the dough and brought in GS1 consultants actually from global, uh, global standards. I brought them into our facility to say, hey, we need to talk about this because we have this type of relationship. And, you know, fortunately, unfortunately, after about six and a half hours, seven hours of conversation, it was, well, I don't know. You should really get involved with our regulatory things and, you know, pay six more figures to fly out to D.C. and participate in all these discussions. And maybe in the next decade or so, we'll figure this out. Awesome. So that's, it's, it's a big piece. And I think it's something that, you know, line of sight to this stuff uh, within the customer base because it's all just about data and housing and then, and then recognizing and categorizing data um, is important and it's going to get more important. Yeah, I'm going I'm to ask the audience this question. I asked it at a conference a few weeks ago and I got a surprisingly low amount of participation, but I'll ask it here anyways. Who here knows of an initiative at their company around master data management? Anybody here have, an, have a program around master data management? A couple and a kind of a... Was a, was that a yes or was a? What about um, an enterprise-wide approach to integration? Okay, those are two. Those are two things that are common themes across all initiatives, whether it's a cold chain or not, whether it's responding to market changes, competitors, suppliers, business expansion, adding different service lines, whatever. I can tell you that a lot of these projects' uh, success level or ability to achieve a return on investment is predicated on master data management and a mature approach to enterprise integration. Okay, so you, and some of the folks in here might not know about those initiatives, but I would say go back to your company and ask, ask IT or ask the CIO and see if those are initiatives going on because they're extremely important to enable a lot of the different projects that create value in the organization. So we left a few minutes for q and I'll turn over the ownership. Does anybody have any questions? First of all, thank you both for all that wonderful information. Uh, does anybody have any questions from the audience? No? I, I have a couple questions for you, if that's okay. We have a couple minutes. Um, what do you consider to be the most likely disruptors in cold chain over the next 12 to 18 months? This is a bit of a cop-out, but weather 
uh, and maybe this is more specific to my space, but it's okay, I'm on the stage with the mic so I can be selfish. Um, weather, and it's because, you know, uh, Produce comes from the ground. <laughs> so as we're seeing some of these more erratic weather patterns, some of these more heat waves, um, they're really impacting demand plans and case capacity, which is used in planning uh, freight capacity and trailer capacity. And as those things start to shift and pivot and uh, adjust and start, stop, et cetera, um, it really causes havoc. And it, it puts a significant amount of stress and strain on that going back to the slide around kind of route complexity and route optimization, it puts the stress on that network to be able to re react flexibly and not have to incur unnecessary cost, uh, which, you know, obviously impacts, you know, EBITDA and other several other, you know, mitigating factors um, down throughout the chain. Um, so that's one thing that is, I think, is going to continue to be a challenge um, going forward, which is, uh, it's, it's, the erraticism of the weather as it's changing across the globe? I would say probably coronavirus is going to be disrupting every supply chain. No, I would say in, in this space, Amazon, right? I don't have to go into an explanation as to why, but Amazon is definitely changing the way in which um, all of its competitors and suppliers are organizing their supply chain, dealing with technology, working with carriers, right? So I, I would say Amazon is the biggest one in this space. Okay. What is something that you would recommend the attendees that requires zero investment but will lead to immediate improvement? Um, I'll, I'll do this with a little bit of an anecdote. Um, you're either getting smarter or you're getting dumber, but the world keeps spinning. So you want to talk about something that's low to no cost that will definitely have an impact. It's all of these materials, either if it's through USDA or PACA or FISMA, the Food Safety Modernization Act, they're all readily available. Commodity details, commodity descriptors, et cetera, they're all readily available online for free. And you know they don't require you to sign up for a subscription or buy this piece of software or do those particular pieces. If you are a regular uh, party member or regularly interact with perishables if it's in a 3PL space, if it's in a shipper space, if it's in an asset space, um, being familiar with that information can definitely pay dividends. Um, but it is a risk mitigation piece. So it's one of those that it's, it's not gonna be, uh, it's not gonna be valuable until all of a sudden it's valuable, right? And I'm sure there's, you know, uh, um, I won't ask for a show of hands on this question, but I'm sure we've all interacted with our fair share of freight claims in our history whether or not it was our fault or it wasn't our fault. Um, and, you know, those being kind of quality related, you know, we hope they're not, and it's just something dumb like a broken pallet or something like that. But, you know, if they are quality related, being knowledgeable on how apples are inspected or what are, what's finicky about tomatoes, you know, and the sizing specs of tomatoes can certainly help more than it can hurt. We all know freight claims are no one's fault, right? Um, I would say uh, cheaper free, and that is something that we, we do all the time on projects, but our clients can do it too. We have a saying called seeing the three actuals, and that's the actual people doing the actual process in the actual place. And what you find is, you know, 
there's no better way to discover the actual problem by going to the actual place and seeing the operator. It's too common that people sit in conference rooms and say, oh, this is how we do something and we're very good at it or we're, we're okay at it and I understand the problem statement and therefore I'm going to go solve this because we've discussed it in a conference room. And when you go out and see the three actuals, you uncover the root cause or the symptom, then you can go find the root cause upstream. So I would say go do the three actuals and document it. Maybe your cell phone. Um, and you can immediately find process improvements and system improvements by doing that. And you don't need to invest in technology. You don't need to hire a consulting firm. Uh, you don't need to hire out anyone you know, new for a new role. So I, I would say you know, go, go do the three actuals and you'll find little problems to solve that'll hopefully return some ROI. So out of all the technologies discussed, um, which have the lowest initial cost and risk, and therefore the quickest and safest return on investment? Um, I'll say, generally speaking, um, try to look for some apps out there that are in the cloud. Uh, SaaS, multi-tenant, you know, transactional-based, where it's, it's, it's a low cost to entry, so you can you know, kind of get in there, figure out, maybe target it to maybe some specific product lines or some specific pieces of equipment, depending on what business unit you're in. Um, and if it doesn't work out or if it's something that's not yielding the investment that uh, you might be looking for, it's easy to get back out of. This is one of those, because we're talking about, in a lot of respects, risk mitigation, this is one of those that, uh, you know, unsexy, kind of hard to uh, understand, quantify why you might be doing something every single day. And it's because you do it every single day for the moment then when something goes wrong, you can be prepared. You can be the one that, you know, say in a 3PL capacity, um, one of say multiples that you might be working with the same customer and something goes wrong with that customer. How great does it feel that you're the one that can raise your hand first and say, I'm good, I got you everything you need when all of your customers, other 3PLs are still twiddling their thumbs trying to figure out how to get that information. So it's, it's, it's tough to try to kind of understand it on its face or on a day-to-day -day or week-to-week -week or period-to-period -period, uh, ROI with some of this stuff um, because it's all about you know, being prepared and mitigating that risk. So that's the two kind of how I would look at them together. So I can build on my comment around three actuals for what would drive the most value and lowest risk, quickest amount of time. So when you see the three actuals in your organization, you'll see that the number one used TMS at your company is Microsoft Excel, and the number one integration application is Outlook. And everyone just goes to your core systems, downloads stuff, does a bunch of analysis, you know, uploads it somewhere else or shares it with someone else who then downloads that file, right? And so I would say this would drive back to something earlier I said around fixing your master data and focusing on integration. So if you see the three actuals, you improve some processes, you see how much people have you know, magic spreadsheets with color-coded information, and you could probably, with IT support, assuming you have a, a you know, strong IT department that has an integration application, go and integrate your systems a bit better and, and um, unlock something and create value and, and not have to go out and buy a whole new software and go implement it and create a lot of risk. I would, I would focus on improving integration and, and trying to get away from a point-to-point -point integration structure and move towards more of a hub and spoke model so that you can share integrations across lots of applications and enrich your data. Okay. And what is it about the cold chain and transportation industry that drives your passion for being a part of all of this? Make Matt go first on all these. Drives my passion. Um, I'm a glutton for punishment because it's hard. <laughs> 
No. Um, a little simpler, you're, uh, you're feeding people. You know, there's, there's something to be said about that's like, hey, it's a nice shirt, it's a nice jacket, it's a nice pullover, right? Nice iPhone, right? You know, that's neat. But, you know, it's with all the focus on, on health and on, you know, making better food decisions, better eating decisions, um, I'm, it's exciting for me, as corny as it might sound, it's exciting for me to think about that I'm trying to make a meaningful impact on ensuring that that stuff is delivered and put in the hands of consumers at a reasonable price. And it is of the best quality that can be afforded to them given the season. So that's probably one of the bigger, if not the biggest pieces. It's just, it's, it's feeding people. I would say for me, it's, it's fun to, you know, be in a grocery store or be at a fast food restaurant and like look at the product and say, I know, I know how that, I know how many spreadsheets it took to get that here. You know, I, you know, I, you have an understanding of how things work. And we were, we were talking about this earlier. A lot of people ignore transportation, even within a supply chain. But I would say, just broadly speaking, they ignore transportation because it's kind of like a utility. Like the lights come on. I don't understand electrical engineering. All I know is the lights are on or they're not on. It's same thing with transportation. People don't think about how it got to that place on the shelf. For example, my mom, she, when I, I try to explain to her what I do, she does not understand it. She's like, why don't you just make sandwiches? You know, because she understands that I'm eating a sandwich. But she doesn't understand the complexity to get all those ingredients there safely and freshly. And so I like sort of a, the, the you know, curiosity side, understanding how everything in the grocery store got there and how difficult it was and how easy it, it is to then present to the consumer you know, to buy it. So I think that's the thing that drives my passion around this. Well, I think we're uh, pretty close out of time. There's no other questions from the audience. Yes? The question was um, just impact of blockchain on the supply chain and cold chain and food. It's Pee Wee Herman. He said the magic word. That's, that's the buzzers and sing, zingers and all the stuff going on. Um, I, you know, kind of back to the, uh, some of the comments I had around the food traceability. Um, it's, it's obviously coming. <laughs> it's happening in a lot of respects right now. Um, but it's slow pickings because of at least the challenges we've experienced on the vendor side. And, you know, and that even at a commodity level, that's an industry that's still severely fragmented, right? Uh, at least for us, a lot of the uh, Western veg, so leafy greens, you're talking spinach, you know, romaine's not a great example, so don't judge me on that. But, you know, you talk about spinach, you talk about iceberg, Boston lettuce, butterhead. Um, those folks, they're more prepared with that. They're already publishing GS128 compliant labels on their cases. Um, they're already readily available with harvest date, not necessarily just pack date or ship date. Uh, and that's some information. But then you flip that on its head and you look at, say, potatoes, uh, either coming out of Idaho or Colorado or Florida. Um, and that's a space that is, is vastly behind the time. So it's, it's something that, you know, whether or not the industry actually, from a regulatory standpoint, starts to step up to the plate, um, it, which could vastly impact the ability of how we're able to source that product. Um, it's, it's, it's always going to be a little bit of a, well, we can do it with these commodities, but we can't necessarily do it or we can't report back with the degree of accuracy with these other commodities simply just because of how that commodity is transacted 
in the space. I hope that kind of answered your question here a little bit. So, I'll tell you, it's surprising how infrequently we're being asked to help people think about how blockchain can solve these problems. So I'll say more broadly than just this topic, a lot of our customers are going from, you know, 10 years out of date or five years out of date up to current, just from process and technology. And, and applying blockchain would be like taking a quantum leap, which is very risky and difficult and a lot of education has to happen. I would say food traceability is the perfect use case for blockchain, but it's still, there's still a huge lack of understanding, a lack of, I don't want to say trust because blockchains are built when there's a lack of trust, but there's a lack of um, institutional knowledge around how it should be used differently than traditional applications with integration and master data management. So I, I, I still think it's surprising how far behind we all are in trying to find business applications for blockchain. And you know, as a, as a consulting firm, I'm still waiting for that momentum to, because a lot of our customers push us, right? We don't always just go to our customer and say, go do blockchain. They start asking the questions. And I'll tell you, there's a surprisingly low amount of questions being asked about how blockchain can help attack any of their problems. Um, so I would just say we're all surprised that it's not taking off. Um, just a little plug here, but Invista uh, produced a food safety article in Food Logistics March issue. So be sure to stop by your booth at 5380 so you can subscribe. And if there are no other questions, uh, I want to thank you, Jeff and Matt, for being a part of this panel. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.